Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 11, In Christ Alone. Today I'll be interviewing Michael Burgos, creator of the Grassroots Apologetics blog, discussing oneness Pentecostals and how to witness to them. Before we get into the interview, there are a couple of brief things I wanted to share. First, a friend of mine and fellow Cub Scout parent told me recently out of the blue that she'd been listening to this podcast and that she really enjoyed it, even recommending it to a friend of hers. She went on to tell me that what she really liked about it was that it got her thinking about issues she hadn't thought much about, which really touched my heart because that's precisely why I started this podcast. I'm not going to mention your name, but if you're listening, thank you so much for your words of encouragement. My desire is that all my listeners would discover the depth of the faith they profess and explore it in the Bible with a level of thinking that perhaps you might not have done before. As Greg Kokel has said, emotions are what make life delicious, and careful thinking is what makes life safe. Speaking of Greg Kokel, I went out on a limb and emailed one of his staff, uh, asking if he might be interested in letting me interview him on my show. It turns out that his schedule is too tightly packed through the end of the year, but I was told to email again in January so he could set something up. I'm going to try and not count my chickens before they hatched, but I can't tell you how excited I am at just the mere possibility that I might get to uh, to talk to Greg personally. Don't hold your breath, but be praying his schedule might have a place in it for me. Finally, as I mentioned several episodes ago, I've been uh, discussing the Christian faith with an atheist, and I would humbly ask that you continue to pray for her. I think the conversation is going well, but perhaps it goes without saying that she's not yet changed her position. Please pray God would speak through me and would open her heart to her need for his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I've decided to start replaying promos I've played in previous episodes as I've kind of exhausted many of the shows I listen to, so here again is a promo for a show I highly recommend. Hi, this is Dee Dee Warren of the Preterist Podcast where I discuss biblical prophecy without the hype and sensationalism found in many evangelical circles. So if you would like to learn a different, yet completely orthodox, way to view things, such as the Great Tribulation and the so-called Rapture, please have a listen. The podcast can be found on iTunes and many other podcasting directories, or can be found directly at preteristpodcast.com. Please do check out Dee Dee's podcast. I very much enjoy it. I highly recommend it. And my experience guest hosting her show is sort of what prompted me to start my own podcast, which I guess kind of means you have her to either thank or blame, (laughs) depending on whether or not you like my show. So with that, let's move into today's interview. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What hides Today I'm joined by my guest, Michael Burgos, creator of the Grassroots, Grassroots Apologetics blog. Thanks for joining me today, Mike. Oh, well, sure. It's a, an honor and a privilege to, uh, to take part in your program. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, well, first, let me just say I want to thank you for your participation in my blog. It's been kind of a, um, you know, it's, it's worn me down debating baptismal regeneration. So I just want to appreciate for your uh, your involvement there. Oh, sure. No problem. So what I want to do to get started, I told Gene Cook this uh, in the last episode. I really enjoy learning about other Christians that I've met for the first time by hearing their testimony. So if you don't mind, tell us your story. Were you pretty much always a Christian, or is your faith something you came into? Uh, and either way, how did it develop and become real to you? Um, well, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home initially. Um, my father was a long-haul truck driver, and my mother was a, a payroll clerk. And after being out on the road for a month, uh, my father came home professing Christ. And um, him and I began to going to uh, began to go to a uh, a church. And I was probably about you know, 10, 11 years old. Hmm. And uh, the church was a it was a hyper charismatic uh, word of faith church. Hmm. Um, and so that was. Uh, for a good part of my adolescence into my 
latter part of my teens, my understanding of Christianity. Um, and, and I believe the church to have taught many heretical doctrines. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I just ate it up. I, I knew nothing else. Uh, and, um, that's just was really my first understanding of Christianity. And I, I kind of thought everyone else was, was like that too. Hmm. Um, through kind of an interesting series of events, God, by His grace, took me out of that environment and put me into a church that was, um, <laughs> it was a little more sane. Uh, <laughs> and, um, it did, it did have a major focus on teaching from the scriptures, but it, it was just a little bit more orthodox, I guess is the way I'll put it. It was a charismatic church as well, but it wasn't as, uh, uh, heretical in a lot of different respects. I see. And, um, you know, that, I, I suppose at some point, uh, you know, well, you know, being in these churches, I, I came to faith. I mean, to tell you the truth, you know, a lot of people have, uh, you know, they can tell you the date and the time. I can't. Hmm. Uh, and I'm not even sure it wasn't until my latter adult years. Um, so. It's kind of kind of my story, not a very good one, but I I could tell you some interesting stories about uh, that church that I used to go to. We used to rub elbows with people like Rodney Howard Brown and uh, and other prosperity preachers. Wow. Um, yeah. Anyway, but uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, we may have to uh, have you on in the future to talk about some of those experiences. Um, you know, as I've explained to my listeners, uh, I started this podcast out of a passion that I've developed for theology and apologetics, which it seems to me is a passion that you share. How did this passion develop for you? Uh, what led you to study and write about theology and apologetics? Um, good question. Um, well, this kind of goes back to your last question. After I came out of that church, um, you know, I basically remained a very lukewarm Christian. I had very little interest in the scriptures. I had my peaks and valleys, but really I was, I was really the textbook nominal Christian. Hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of the things that I had come to accept, um, that I had come to think about the Christian faith was, were just, you know, they were just flat out incorrect. Hmm. Uh, and what had happened, I was working in a storefront office outside of a train station and, um, this was this was in my early twenties. Uh, I'm now uh, 31. I, w- I was walking to my office, and a Jehovah's Witness approached me. The Jehovah's Witnesses would congregate outside that train station to hand out their literature to uh, passers-by. Oh yeah. And um, you know, this was an older woman. She approached me with a Watchtower magazine, and uh, yeah, we kind of struck up a conversation. Um, I, I didn't really know what Jehovah's Witnesses believed. I knew it was some kind of cult. I knew that there was something bizarre about their understanding of Jesus, but uh, you know, I didn't really uh, didn't really know. And so, I invited her into my office. At the time, I had a job that allowed me to converse with the public. Her and I began meeting every morning uh, for about fifteen, twenty minutes on Friday mornings, and um, you know, gradually our conversations got a little more intense. And it was really like the blind leading the blind. <laughs> I had no concept of what I was doing. I was completely biblically illiterate. I, I, I mean, I, I probably could count the number of hours uh, that I had read the Bible on my hand uh, hmm. in my entire life. It was pretty bad. And what had happened was I had a coworker uh, who I. Uh, knew for a number of years, and he had confessed to be a Christian to me. And um, he was an older man and, and a great worker, and he was very well kept and everything. So he was there one one of these Friday mornings, and it was kind of comforting to me that um, he was in the room. And you know, I figured if I got in a jam, I could uh, call upon his expertise. <laughs> I figured, yeah, you know, I'm sure he'll be interested and help me out. Well, what happened was I had mentioned the Trinity to this Jehovah's Witness, and, you know, she looked at me with kind of this disgust and said, well, you know, the Trinity is not found in the Bible. You know, I was kind of, 
you know, what, what do I say now? You know, right. I guess the word isn't, you know, is what I thought. So I looked to my friend, uh, for a little support and to my amazement, he actually agreed with the Jehovah's Witness and said, yeah, the, the Trinity is not found in the Bible. And, um, God is one, is what he said, and he said uh, the Trinity is actually a doctrine derived from paganism. And uh, that day I kind of left work shocked. Oh, yeah. And, uh, a little bit betrayed. And um, what ended up happening, I, I had asked him the next day, you know, I thought you were a Christian. You know, and he said, well, I am. I'm an apostolic Christian. Huh. So uh, I looked up on the Internet when I had gotten home, what, what that meant. And uh, that's when I discovered he was a oneness Pentecostal. And, um, you know, he and I developed uh, somewhat of a dialogue over the course of years. And, um, you know, through that experience, and uh, there was one point where I had some sin real painfully exposed in my life. There's just this whole culmination of things that God... Um, you know, so, sort of sovereignly put together, and I, I, I began to actually read my Bible in a moment of desperation. And it was at that point where, um, you know, I felt like I had nothing nothing left. And so I began to, to read the scriptures and to take them seriously a little bit. And, you know, I, I can't really, de- you know, I can't really describe what God did there. Uh, he just put a real thirst for his word. Sure. I mean, that's kind of an understatement, but, um, and, and, you know, I, I can't honestly say that I was a believer, and, and you know, in, in all probability, I don't know that I was. Hmm. Prior to that, I, I could have very much so been a false convert, considering uh, my understanding of the gospel you know, prior to that. Um, you know, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Uh, so I'm thinking maybe at some point in my my study, my beginning studies there, I came to the true faith in Christ. But um, I, as I began to read the scriptures and, and come to an understanding of, of what the Bible actually teaches, I began to root out some, some false doctrines and teachings I had come to believe were true. And um, I had also um, simultaneously been studying and, and trying to grasp uh, what oneness Pentecostal Pentecostals believe, what the movement taught so far as, uh, you know, the soteriological aspects, but also, of course, the doctrine of God. And, um, and, and simultaneously, I was studying our, you know, our own understanding, our orthodox doctrines. I had, uh, you know, a job that allowed me to spend large quantities of time listening to the scriptures and reading them. I had a, a very long, you know, three-hour day commute. And so it wasn't uncommon for me to be, you know, studying the scriptures, you know, for hours daily. And it was, it was quite a blessing. Hmm. And um, ultimately, uh, my friend and I started to exchange written works, not to take away from time from the job. And, um, what had happened was eventually he refused to, uh, refused to talk to me because, uh, uh, well, my, my opinion is he refused to talk to me because I was refuting what he was saying. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, that was over the course of about eight years. And it was only until recently where I, I had met him in a hallway. Him and I don't normally work together, but we met in a hallway and we had about a 10 minute discussion. And, um, uh, you know, my, my prayer was that God would just give me one more chance just to plant a seed of the truth in his heart. Right. You know, he had just, you know, uh, rejected basically everything I had said. So this 10 minutes, it was amazing how God used it. Uh, had brought up a couple of texts. And, um, you know, he, he was actually an itinerary, itinerant uh, oneness minister. And hmm. um, so he, in my mind, he had a lot to lose. Uh, oh, yeah walking away but he left that day that that brief conversation with a uh, couple of tears running down his face so my only hope is that perhaps uh god would use that to uh to bring the true faith in christ 
Have you have you seen or spoken to him since? I have. Um, you know, he uh, he kind of acts as if nothing has happened, and he oh. you know, tries to make quick work of getting out of wherever I am. You know. Yeah. But um, you know, it's it, it you know it just breaks my heart because he's such a nice guy and uh, he's got a family. And, you know. It's just tough, but, uh, you know, these bad theology has real bad consequences, that's for sure. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'll definitely be praying for him. Um, you know, it's, it seems to me like this is the oneness Pentecostalism isn't an area of major focus, uh, amongst apologetics ministries. I mean, I've seen a bunch of ministries focus on the Jehovah's Witnesses, on the Mormons, Catholics, uh, and a bunch of other groups. Uh, and you know, it could just be that I haven't looked very hard, but I haven't seen a lot of focus on oneness Pentecostalism. Why do you think that, why do you think that it doesn't receive as much, uh, attention in terms of apologetics as some of these other more notable Christian counterfeits? Well, I think probably Firstly, it's a, there's a semantical similarity with an orthodox understanding of, of the Christian faith. I mean, conventional Pentecostalism is very much so um, an orthodox uh, part of Christianity. Um, you know, and, and there's, of course, in a lot of people's minds, an equivocation made between the oneness variant. Um, they do have a, uh, a common origin at the Azusa Street Revival, so... Uh, there's a lot of different similarities between the two groups and, and you know, uh, the Assemblies of God, a Pentecostal, uh, denomination is one of the largest denominations. So I think there is that equivocation. The other thing is that, um, oneness Pentecostals, uh, they, they tend to, um, it, it's kind of strange how, how some groups will, uh, sort of try to assimilate themselves into evangelicalism. Other groups will try to, you know, keep their distance. Hmm. Uh, but it seems to me, in much the same way that the LDS Church is trying to uh, put on the appearance of Christianity, it seems to me that the UPCI, uh, the largest of the oneness denominations, is is trying to do something very similar. I see. Um, and I, I don't know that that's a you know, that there's a concentrated effort. That's just my, purely my opinion. So, so whether, whether intentional or not, they've sort of had a PR campaign, I guess, to, to make themselves seem like just another legitimate denomination, much like you said, as the LDS church has done. Is that kind of what you're saying? It's not on the same scale. Um, but there have been some doctrinal changes, um, that have, you know, have made it a lot easier for uh, an evangelical to convert to oneness Pentecostalism, particularly in the UPCI. Uh, you know, they've reduced some of their, what they would call holiness standards. Uh, previously, there was a prohibition on all wearing of jewelry, uh, wearing, you know, short sleeve shirts, things that, you know, really bizarre. <laughs> things like that. And uh, now there's not so much. Um, I have heard rumors, although I'm not 100% sure, but uh, two UPCI members have told me that some UPCI churches are allowing female pastors. Uh, to me, that's uh, uh, you know a sign of uh, some kind of uh, you know a strain of liberalism going through the movement. And I I think that that is part parcel of that uh, sort of uh, assimilation into evangelicalism because a lot of the same things are happening with you know our denominations. Yeah. That's true. Well, you know, given given that they're trying to assimilate in this way, I'm curious just how successful they've been. I mean, are there some maybe prominent oneness teachers and figures that Orthodox Christians might follow, not realizing what it is that they're exposing themselves to? And if so, why do you think they managed to gain such prominence despite their dangerous views? Um, I, I would say whatever they're doing is working uh, because oneness Pentecostalism, their membership, this is information that I've, I've gotten from a, a number of different places. Firstly, uh, uh, a culmination of UPCI and PAW and some other oneness denominations. Their population has grown from uh, 450,000 in the U.S. about 15 years ago to approximately 4 million wow. in the U.S. and approximately 16 million worldwide. So whatever they're doing definitely is, is working. Uh, 
so far as teachers that maintain a oneness doctrine of God, uh, there, there are some out there that, that um, are notable. I don't know that any evangelical Christians would uh, fall victim hmm. to them. Uh, obviously, T.D. Jakes is, is probably one of the uh, most popular oneness Pentecostal preachers, but, um, you know, mo- most oneness uh, adherents that I know do not consider him uh, <laughs> a valid representation of oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, like evangelical Christianity, uh, there's a big movement in oneness Pentecostalism to rid themselves of a prosperity gospel. Uh-huh. Uh, so that would sort of rule him out. There are some other people, a fellow by the name of Kim Clement, who is uh, also a, a word of faith uh, individual who you know engages in a lot of uh, prophecies and things like that. But um, I, I, I'm of the feeling that you know he would be falling along the same lines as as T.D. Jakes and most oneness minds. There are a couple of others. Um, for instance, the the band uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean. A lot of people are unaware that he is a uh, that, that those guys are actually. Uh, um, I believe two of them are UPCI ministers. Wow! Uh, and they're thoroughly convinced of their oneness doctrine of God. And there's a few others that the the group, the Katinas, uh, I believe, is an acapella group that was popular a few years back, and. Um, there's a few others that I can think of here. Maybe, oh, Juanita Bynum. Um, she has released some statements that are thoroughly modalistic within the past five years, but again, she falls in line with that prosperity uh, understanding of the gospel. So th- th- it seems to me almost like what you're saying is that the oneness teachers anyway that that do gain at least a little bit of attention from amongst evangelical circles because uh, as scary as it sounds i have uh met you know professing evangelical christians who do follow td jakes and wouldn't even know um that he teaches you know some oneness doctrines but uh, anyway do you think that the the ones that do gain that kind of um assimilation um it's it's in part because they're also weaving in this uh uh prosperity gospel I mean, um, like, like for example, I think it's true. yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say because another name that comes to mind, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, Creflo, uh, Creflo Dollar is a name that I've I've seen some really suspiciously sounding uh, theology as far as God is concerned, and, and he's also a prosperity uh, teacher. Yeah, I mean, Creflo Dollar uh, holds to what is called canonical Christo- uh, Christology. Um, he would believe that. Uh, when you go to the Pat, the Karmic Christian Philippians 2, um, where it is said of Christ that he emptied himself to uh, be found in the form of a servant in human flesh, he would say that Christ actually uh, relieved himself of his deity. Um, so that that's where Creflo Dollar okay. falls. I would find that to be her- heretical. Um, and also, of course, that does damage to the uh, immutability of God, but um, there's a concentrated effort with people like T.D. Jakes to keep their modalism a secret. Hmm. Uh, and I would say that's even been demonstrated to be the case with Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Uh, they know where the money is at. They know that if they can sell their wares to evangelicals, that, you know, that's where they're going to get paid, and, and that's what they do. So, um, yeah. these, these oneness teachers on, on, who are involved in the prosperity uh, theology. Um, there's not really, I mean, they're not necessarily known for their discernment skills, and, and so too with the other prosperity uh, people like Creflo Dollar, they're willing to join arms with the modalists like T.D. Jakes because they're in a money-making proposition together. Yeah. And, uh, it was just in the news today that uh, T.D. Jakes was calling for prayer for Bishop Eddie Long. And uh, Eddie Long is a Trinitarian at least his doctrine, uh, statement of faith says he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just this, you know, that, that would further serve to be an equivocation. Yeah. Uh, on the part of, uh, you know, uh, PD Jakes's, uh, PR machine. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, you know, with all that in mind, let's, let's dive right in. Um, tell us, 
what are some of the major differences between oneness Pentecostalism and historic Christianity? And maybe you could start by explaining the term oneness, um, which, as you know, is also kind of ironically why I've chosen In Christ Alone by Phillips Craig and Dean as the title song for this episode. Yeah, good choice. Um, <laughs> sure. Oneness basically, basically is an understanding that God is Unitarian. Um, very much so like, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Christadelphians or somebody like Anthony Buzzard. Uh, Unitarian meaning, of course, that God is one person. Mm. Uh, not, of course, affiliated with, uh, you know, Unitarian Universalism. That's a whole other ball of wax. But oneness is basically a modern day variant of a very ancient heresy known as Sibelianism. Or sometimes it's called modalistic monarchianism or, uh, or just plain modalism. Hmm. And, um, oneness is, uh, is a term used to describe, uh, oneness Pentecostalism's emphasis on their Unitarian understanding of God. Uh, so that, that's basically where the term is, is, uh, derived from. Is this, is, is this the same group, by the way, that's called sort of the Jesus only movement, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's sort of a, a name that evangelicals over the years, uh, particularly um, the uh, the Assemblies of God, have have sort of branded the oneness movement with that. Um, it's not something that they would use for themselves. Mm. Initially, oneness Pentecostalism, uh, as I said, was a sort of a byproduct of the uh, Azusa Street revival, and. The large majority of initial oneness pastors came out of the Assemblies of God. They were actually excommunicated from the Assemblies of God. And that's where that title was derived from. Those oneness uh, folks were deemed the Jesus-only pastors by uh, the uh, ruling Assemblies of God elders who, who excommunicated them. And, and does that come from their um, insistence that we must be baptized in Jesus' name only? Uh, certainly that's part of it. Uh, their famous proof text is a cross-reference between Acts 2.38 and Matthew 28.19, where they would say that the name uh, of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit is the name Jesus. Hmm. Um, so certainly their baptismal formula. But it also stems from the fact that they believe the name of, of the one eternal creator God to be Jesus. I see. So that name they see as an eternal name. And they would say Yahweh is, in some sense, an interpolation of that name. Hmm. Um, so that's the other, you know, kind of the other half of that story. I see. Uh, they're called oneness Pentecostals. Is that because they share the Pentecostal view of baptism in the Holy Spirit? Um, they do. They do see that uh, second sort of uh, spiritual baptism. Um, they would share that. They would also share the uh, uh, speaking of tongues as the evidence of salvation. Hmm. Um, you know, and there are a lot of other similarities. Um, you know, oneness Pentecostalism came out of the holiness movement. Um, you know, a lot of other Orthodox Pentecostals have sort of, you know, gotten away from that um, to the extreme that, that you know, they once held it. But uh, oneness Pentecostalism has pretty steadily held on to that for the most part. Um, so there are those, uh, you know, holiness standard similarities as well. Hmm. And am I right in understanding that they, uh, and, and, and I gather this from your post on Theology Web, actually, uh, do oneness Pentecostals also believe that um, water baptism is the point of regeneration, similar to, say, the International Churches of Christ? Um, they're not as defined as that. They're not. They don't put a, a point that sharp on it. What they would say is that baptism is part of God's plan of salvation. Hmm. They would say that baptism is the uh, requirement on our part of salvation. It's very much a, uh, a works-oriented understanding of baptism. Hmm. Um, and uh, David Bernard's book. Uh, David Bernard is the head of the UPCI and probably one of their more notable theologians. Um, speaks of in his book the the, uh, the new birth that uh, our obedience to the uh, command of baptism is uh, equated as righteousness in the eyes of God. That's a that's a loose quote, but um, it's pretty close to that. And so yeah, they would hold a, a doctrine of baptism very similar to the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ also came out of Azusa, if I'm not correct. So they're 
there's some very similar doctrines there. Uh, are there are there any other differences that uh, you know we should keep an eye open for? Um, well, like I said, the holiness standards, um, they would put a real emphasis on the uh, obedience to what they would what they would consider, uh, you know, <laughs> holiness. I guess, uh, you know, they would say, you know, if you've got a a, a long, you know, a long beard, and, and if you've got earrings in your ears and you're male and you know, those types of things are unholy and therefore you could in no ways be, be a person redeemed. Wow. Um, and, and that type of legalism is actually what causes a lot of people to leave um, the cult. And I would wholly consider it a cult. I mean, maybe not, you know, according to Walter Martin's, uh, the late Dr. Walter Martin's standards, but, um, but I, I do see it as a cult because of its aberrant soteriology and, uh, Misunderstanding with the, the doctrine of God. I see. But yeah, I mean, primarily it's their their doctrine of God and their soteriology that that are the big issues. I would say. Well, now you told me in in email that there um that that some of these aspects of oneness Pentecostalism stretch far back into history, like you mentioned Sabellianism and modalism. How is the oneness Pentecostalism of today different from what it's perhaps been in the past? Uh, how has it changed? Well, they've had to sort of roll with the punches to, to keep up, um, you know, to, to actually make sense of their doctrine. Hmm. Um, and in the same way that, you know, Roman Catholicism post-Reformation has developed, uh, when this Pentecostalism has developed. Hmm. Uh, and what they've done, basically, I mean, they've changed their understanding of... Uh, Christology, there's now a large movement within oneness Pentecostalism that has come to accept Chalcedonian Christology as opposed to more of an historian understanding. Um, so there, there's been quite a few changes in, in my mind, I mean, especially over the last five years. Um, but, um, I mean, oneness Pentecostalism, it, it's something that, you know, if you talk to a person who is um, a thinking oneness person, their understanding of uh, their doctrine is going to be markedly different than your nominal oneness, you know, adherent. Which um, I suppose would be the case of uh, Orthodox evangelicals as well. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, if you ask the average nominal evangelical about the Trinity, they're probably going to give you a modalistic explanation. Sure. Uh, and, you know, that is uh, sort of seems to be the default and um you know it's, it's certainly the default with the, the nominal oneness person i see you told me in an email that one of the problems that comes up in reaching out to oneness pentecostals is terminology uh and you said that like mormonism and jehovah's witnesses they sort of pour into terms that you and i would use different meanings than the ones that we intend when we use those terms can you give us some examples of this sure um well, like I said, Oneness Pentecostalism starts with the Unitarian doctrine of God. And so from that assumption, um, everything else is dictated. And, and so Yahweh, the God of Israel, they would understand Yahweh, the God of Israel, to be Jesus. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, Trinitarians would too. Sure. Uh, at least they should. Um, and, and then post-incarnation, they would see... Uh, the Father as being Jesus, and they would see the Son as being Jesus because he comes in his Father's name. So they would key in on texts that say, you know, I have not come in my own name, but, you know, uh, my Father's. And they would see that the Spirit uh, being the Spirit of Jesus. So so simply the term, the, the, te- the name Jesus, they would, you know, pour a whole different understanding into, uh, take the, the title Son, or I would understand it to be even a name, uh, the name Son of God. Um, to a oneness person, that that simply means the the human flesh and human soul that was indwelt by God, but not uh, the but know. not the eternal deity. Yeah, no, they would not right. recognize uh, 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 the divine nature of the Son uh, in that sense, and using that terminology, sure. uh, would say that the divinity is is in fact Jesus. 
but like I said, there is a, a distinction within the movement that, um, you know, some are attempting to hold Chalcedonian Christology and, and some are holding on to a previous Nestorian understanding. Can you define, I've got a lot of listeners who, in fact, I'll be honest, even I don't know what you're talking about when you say Chalcedonian Christology. Can you define that for me really quick? Sure. Um, the, the Council of Chalcedon, which occurred in 451 AD, was the council that sort of hammered out how the two natures of Christ, the divine nature and the human nature, relate. And uh, what it came out with is the understanding that, number one, Christ has a genuine human nature, and that includes a human soul. Uh, these things are genuine and complete and in no way different than what we possess. Uh, but secondly, he also possesses an eternal divinity um, that is of the same nature as the Father. Uh, not the Father's person, mm-hmm. but the same being as the Father. And so Chalcedon basically tells us how, in fact, these two natures relate. And it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful definition. Um, you can find it on the Internet. But uh, it basically tells us that these two natures were unmixed. Um, that they coexisted and that they were possessed by one single person, hmm. namely the Son of God. And so Nestorian Christology um, is basically an early heresy that accounts for the communication between Jesus, the Son, and the Father by saying, well, Jesus was communicating uh, from his human nature to his divine nature. <laughs> okay. Um, and so that is actually the understanding that most oneness Pentecostals will have. I see. Uh, and it's a it, it's a major point, but you know, uh, it's kind of strange, and it, it certainly can get complicated quickly. Yeah. Well, so I see that you're saying that the the terms Jesus and Son and Father and Spirit all have different meanings for them. Are, are there other terms that uh, that they use differently than we do? Um. I mean, those are the major ones. Of course, you know, issues such as gift, you know, issue, issues with the gifting. Mm. Uh, there are certain phrases and stuff there, but, but really that pales in comparison to the importance of the, um, uh, semantics of the Godhead that they employ. I mean, uh, to suggest that the sun is simply the flesh, the human flesh, human soul, uh, it's just huge. And so whenever you would approach a oneness person, you have to keep those kinds of things in mind. Um, the other thing is, of course, the word of the Logos of John 1, 1 and 2, um, they would understand that to be the um, plan or reason or, or redemptive plan of the Son in the mind of God, uh, much like many other Unitarians. Hmm. Uh, so that would certainly be another uh, difference in understanding so far as their language goes. So, well, so with this language gap, I guess, um, well, not language gap, but, you know, with, with these different meanings they pour into these terms, it could be hard to even know if we're approaching somebody who's the oneness. Uh, you know, you said we need to keep some of these, the, these things in mind when we approach a oneness Pentecostal, but I wonder if some of these terms are used so, are, are used, but in a different way, how can we, uh, keep an eye out for, I mean, what are some things that we can keep an eye out for so that we can identify oneness teachers and churches and, and maybe even friends and family, which, because of these uh, terms, might not be immediately recognizable as oneness Pentecostalism? Um, look for the term apostolic. Generally, oneness churches will have this term on, on you know, their church sign or their building. Um, apostolic, in their mind, is, is a phrase that, you know, that their doctrine harkens back to the doctrine of the apostles. So they, they're really a restorationist type movement where they're, you know, sort of finding themselves restoring the true doctrine of God. Um, you know, obviously the terms, uh, uh, oneness, you know, something that they've given themselves, something that they heavily use. Um, you know, I mean, when I, when I, when I meet somebody and they confess Christ or they say they're a Christian or whatever, I, you know, I, I ask some probing questions. I'll, I'll say, well, what, what kind of Christian are you? You know, are you, uh, uh, an evangelical Christian? Are you a Catholic? I mean, you know, clarify. And, and unfortunately in this country and in this day and age, that's what you have to do. Yeah. Um, there's just so much false teaching in the church. There's, 
there's just so much out there. And unfortunately, uh, well, I, a lot of people look at the false teaching in the church as, you know, a judgment on the church. I, I see it as more of a blessing because it causes us to be sharpened. Oh, yeah. In the word of God and such. But, but yeah, you kind of have to do a little detective work to really see if a, a person is a, a oneness person. Chances are in your town there's a oneness church. Hmm. Just about every town has one. <laughs> Right. You know, uh, one thing I'll throw in there too into the mix. Uh, when I was preparing for this interview, I did a little, little bit of research and, um, some of the quotes that are pointed to as evidence that somebody is, is a oneness Pentecostal is they'll, uh, speak of the manifestation of the Father or the manifestation of the Son or the manifestation of the Spirit. Is that, is that a term that you see as being sort of an earmark of a oneness Pentecostal? Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, one is Pentecostal would say, well, you know, we believe not three eternal, you know, distinct, uh, co-equal persons, but we believe in three manifestations of the one God or, or three modes of existence of the one God. Mm. We use terminology like that. Um, generally, if a person is going to go that route, they'll just identify themselves as oneness. That's, that's my experience anyway. Okay. And they'll try to use analogies Every, it seems like everybody tries to use analogies for God. And none of them really work for Trinitarianism, but uh, for modalism, they work great. They'll give the analogy like, well, you know, see, I'm a father, and I'm a brother, and I'm also a son, and, you know, therefore, I'm, I'm working in three different roles, but and that's how kind of, that's kind of how God is. But, but the, the consistent oneness person wouldn't explain it in that way, because they would see contradictions with their own doctrine. Uh, in an explanation like that, or they'll say, you know, there's a, a similarity between H2O. You know, you have uh, water, the, the fluid, the, you know, the liquid, the, uh, the gas, steam, and, and ice, you know, yet they're all one, you know, that kind of thing. But none of those things ever really, ever really pan out. You know, oh, because you can't have water, steam, and ice in the same place at the same time. You know, right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I was just about to say that that's even an analogy that's, you know, Trinitarians have tried to use, but it fails for that reason and others. Um, yeah, okay. So, are there, is there anything else, you know, um, what are some of the probing questions that we could ask somebody who, for whatever reason, maybe we suspect might be, uh, a oneness Pentecostal? Well, I, I would say that if you're going to approach a oneness Pentecostal, you want to know more about, you know, oneness theology than they know. Um, and unfortunately, in evangelicalism, there's not really a concerted effort to represent oneness Pentecostalism accurately. Hmm. I remember when I was initially going out and examining, you know, uh, the apologetic response from, from, you know, evangelicalism. Um, generally, what I got was uh, a representation of oneness theology that was more of a caricature. It was very much a response to the ancient variety of Sabellianism than, than actually a response to modern-day oneness theology. Hmm. So that's probably what I would do. Um, I mean, I can give you a quick breakdown of what they believe so far as God, and, you know, that would probably aid your listeners into actually you know, understanding how to approach the issue. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, so, um, like I said, oneness theology it primarily starts with the assumption of Unitarianism. And this one God, as I said before, uh, manifests himself in, as Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. He goes on to manifest himself as the Father and um, his physical manifestation as the Son. Um, his spiritual manifestation as, as, of course, the Holy Spirit. Now, they would say that the Holy Spirit is basically the Father uh, in a manifestation or a mode of existence in power, that is, the Father is, um, the Spirit is the Father in action. Hmm. Uh, and, um, well, they'll, they'll, they'll use, for instance, David Bernard's book, The Oneness of God, which is probably the seminal book to read as, as a primer on oneness theology anyway. Um, what he says is, look, you know, God the Father is a spirit, and the Holy Spirit is obviously spirit, and therefore the Father is the spirit. And so very generalized equivocations are made. 
Um, the sun in oneness theology, though, uh, as I said, they would understand that to be the humanity of um, uh, of this one God, uh, not in a personal way, uh, sort of an impersonal way, that the sun didn't begin to exist until Bethlehem, hmm. and that the deity of that sun is the deity of Jesus, the Father. And so... This is kind of a tough point to get a hold of, but once you get a hold of it, it's, it's of paramount importance. So a consistent oneness person cannot affirm the deity of the Son of God. Hmm. And that's really key. They can affirm the deity in the Son of God. And they would run to like Colossians 2.9 and try to, you know, misread that and convolute it to say that the fullness of duality was the, you know, uh, the fullness of deity was dwelling in, in him, as if to say God is, is dwelling in dwelling in him, and that's where he gets his deity. So they would understand the deity of the Son to be a given deity. So almost kind of like, almost kind of like the eternal God created in time a uh, costume to wear? I mean, I know that sounds kind of like a uh, harsh way to put it, but I mean, it's, that's what it's sounding like to me. Yeah, but it, it is in that sense, but there's also a human soul to deal with. Oh, fair enough, yeah. Um, so there's, there's a personal element in that costume as well. Um, the two main streams, the, the Nostorian version versus the Chalcedonian version, they'll, they'll explain this differently, and ultimately they'll come to the same conclusion. And the real problem in one is theology, not only the problem with the text of Scripture and how it doesn't exactly line up with the text, but um, the other problem is, you know, one is Pentecostals have long sought an explanation to the prayer life of Christ. Hmm. And they have um, they've actually made some progress. Uh, you know, it's it's not a problem they've solved by any measure. <laughs> they've kind of changed things up to try to do a little bit of better of a job to to explain these things. But traditionally, the the problem of Jesus's prayers was explained uh, by saying that Jesus was praying from his human nature to his divine nature. Mm. And obviously, the problem with that is, you know, natures don't pray; people pray. That's right. Um, so um, that view is starting to become uh, the less accepted view. The next view, uh, propagated by an individual named Jason Bill, who is a young guy um, and probably one of the more revered uh, oneness teachers out there nowadays, um, and he basically holds on to that Chalcedonian style of Christology, and what he what he suggests is, and he has a number of articles out there on the internet that are pretty easy to find. What he suggests is that um, by virtue of the incarnation, uh, distinct personal element uh, was was produced in in this person that we call the Son, and so that the Son is God existing in a human mode of existence, whereas the Father is that opposite part of God that remains transcendent. And so he, they would ex- explain that communication um, between the Son and the, and the Father in that way. Ultimately, that fails as well because you're still dealing with one person. Yeah. Um, and, it, it, and I was going to say, it sounds kind of weird to suggest that one part of God was praying to another part of God, if you view them as in the way that you just described. Yeah, and it's... You know, they, they go through great lengths to explain this and, and to sort of get out of the hold of Nestorianism, but they never really do. I've written an article on this that gets a little bit deeper. It's called um, An Examination and Reputation of Moldal Christology. Hmm. Uh, it's on my on my site. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll ask you for links for that at the end of the interview. But, yeah. Um, ultimately, I, I think when when dealing with one is Pentecostalism, find out somebody's oneness just you know in my experience when you find out anybody's part of the cult um you know i would probably focus on the two questions of you know who is god and what must i do to be saved i and would probably go at those two questions um and not necessarily that in, in that order <laughs> right well so let's say that we've asked those questions and we've identified them as a oneness based on their answers to our questions you know, I want to in future episodes get a little dig a little bit more deeply if you're willing to uh, come back. But um, let's talk in this with the time we've got left today about how to reach out to them. 
the first question I have for you is why do you think it's important that we be prepared and have a desire to witness to oneness Pentecostals in particular um, amongst other groups? Well, I, I think that uh, oneness people, being that they hold to a heretical doctrine of God, um, are in need of uh, the knowledge of the truth. First mm. um, John tells us that if you deny the Son, you've denied the Father. And therefore, because the, of the uh, implicit denial of the eternality and deity of, of the Son, they, uh, they are not holding to the biblical faith, and, and therefore they're not holding to uh, the biblical God. Uh, they're holding to an idol, and an idol is not capable of saving anyone. Sure. Now, I'm not sure that there's not genuine Christian people. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that there isn't someone who's elect within the, the cult. Um, God could save somebody in spite of that, but um, you know we need to reach out to them because I don't believe they're saved, and I, I don't believe that the Bible attests to that. I mean, Paul was, um, you know, basically damning the Galatians, uh, the Galatian Judaizers, for adding circumcision uh, to the gospel, and here we have oneness people who have basically changed the doctrine of God and um, have added uh, a works element to the gospel of their insistence on baptism. Hmm. Uh, the evidence of tongues. And so um, I, I definitely think we need to reach out for them uh, in an evangelistic sense. Um, if I had a moment with a oneness person and I had identified them as such, um, I, I, I probably would go for their conscience. Hmm. Um, in, in much the same way that a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses have left that movement because they lost faith in watch our organization. A lot of Oneness people leave that movement because they're convicted of their inability to keep up with these holiness standards and, and other things like that. I would probably go for the conscious. I would probably introduce the law of God. I'd probably probe their conscious a little bit and see, you know, where they are with that and, you know, see if they really are keeping the law, which of course they're not using the law to convict them of their sin and trying to bring in the, the true gospel of grace. Uh, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so I would, you know, put my, I put my, uh, my bet on the gospel and, and its power to save. But if I had a good amount of time to spend with a oneness person, you know, more than uh, just a moment, I would bring up a couple of key texts. Um, you know, obviously in, in doing anything like this, any kind of apologetic endeavor, you have to prepare, you know, beforehand. Sure. Uh, and they're about, Three or four texts that not only are handy for oneness Pentecostalism, but for any kind of Unitarianism, really. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, an understanding of uh, the prologue of John, I mean, it's just indispensable, uh, especially an exegetical understanding of John 1 1 and verse 2. Um, John 17 5, Philippians 2 5 through 11. And, you know, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. All those kinds of texts, I mean, they're just invaluable. Um, you know, an accidental understanding of John 1, 1 is probably the first place I'd go because it's the most recognizable. And one is people find this verse to be a proof text for <laughs> their own faith, which is, it's kind of interesting. And you generally, uh, when an evangelical, you know, encounters um, a oneness person, and here's their explanation of John 1 1. No, they, they usually can see the point. Uh, what, what they'll say is, you know, they'll say to the evangelical Trinitarian, they'll say, well, look, you, you believe the word here, the Logos is the Son, right? They'll say, yeah. And you believe God here is the Father. They'll say, yeah. They'll say, okay, well, let's replace those terms for the sake of our discussion. And they'll say, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father. And the son was the father. And, you know, they'll fall right into the, uh, you know, silly plan of, of the oneness adherent. But in actuality, um, an exegetical understanding of the text does not allow that kind of, that kind of stuff. Um, hmm. I mean, I can get into that a little bit if you like. Uh, you can, yeah, you can very briefly. Um, you know, I, I'd like to have you back to delve into this further, but if you want to get a little bit deeper right now, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. I mean, as 
pay special attention to the second clause, of course. Um, I don't know. Well, the, the second clause and the word was God is, is Kai Halogos and Prostantheon. And the thing to understand there is that the apostle utilizes the phrase N, uh, which is the imperfect divine me, read, uh, the word that means to be. It indicates eternality in this context. Hmm. So this, this text tells us that the word was eternal. And not only does it tell us the word was with God, but the word the word used here for with is is the root word of the Greek word for face, prosopon. Uh, it's the word pros. And um, you know, people like the grammarian A. T. Robertson have indicated that this uh, identifies not just a simple, you know, an inanimate object being with God, but but an actual uh, face-to-face or or intimate relationship being described here. Sure. You know, the text is used, the word used in the accusative, and, and so, it, like I said, this kind of text, um, it pays to have an exegetical understanding, and it's very simple to learn. Um, and it, it, it just, it just serves you real well. I have written a number of articles on it. You know, I'd encourage any of your listeners to read it. You know, you may never come into a contact with the oneness person, but, you know, that kind of information is just invaluable. Oh, sure. And, you know, my experience has been that, uh, doing this kind of preparation, even if it never comes out in apologetics, helps us to understand our own faith much better. Oh, absolutely. I think that's why God places, uh, these types of challenges, uh, you know, in the way of the church. Absolutely. I, I'm a firm believer of that. If it was not for my oneness friend, um, you know, grassroots apologetics wouldn't exist. Uh, really, that began as an outpouring of the information and the work and the studying that I had done. Hmm. Um, really, how kind of all got started. You know, it's branched off to other things, but um, absolutely, I'm very thankful for the Colts, or you know, in a certain sense, anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thankful for what they what they what they do to, for the elect. Maybe not so thankful for what they do to the unelect. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there certainly occurs to the, you know, to the unbeliever, but, uh, uh, a great many of, of books and, and other things have been produced, uh, because of these, these things, these groups. Yeah. Well, so that leads me to one question I have for you, uh, as we wrap this up. Uh, besides your blog, uh, which I want to get to in a moment, are there any resources that you can recommend? Uh, you know, you told me that there were a lot of resources you looked into that didn't do modern oneness Pentecostalism justice. Are there any resources, whether books or websites or CDs or anything like that, that um, that do a better job of this that I that you could point my listeners to? The thing that has really served me well um, is is just a a thorough reading of the ministry and life. Christ, I, I know that kind of sounds maybe basic and stuff, but I find that the more I familiarize myself with the Gospels and the way that Jesus interacts during his earthly ministry and, um, you know, the understanding of, of the early church in Acts and how they treated the, the Son, you know, that to me is the most invaluable resource and it's free. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of other ministries out there that really do a fine job. Uh, you know, like I said, most don't really take the, the movement seriously, but, um, one that's been of, of really great importance to me is Alpha and Omega Ministries, uh, the Ministry of Apologists James White. Um, he has written a little bit on oneness Pentecostalism. Um, it's not a major focus of his ministry, but what he's done, I think, is invaluable. Um, he has uh, a number of uh, debates out there. One's a phone debate with, uh, excuse me, radio debate with David K. Bernard. And another one, he had a debate with Robert Sabin, uh, who was a, uh, well, at the time, anyway, is a leading one. Uh, and uh, there's a few other ministries out there. Let Us Reason. Um, I think it's lettucereason.com or .org is, is a place to get some information and you know, there's a there's a smattering out there. You just kind of have to have to go through and um, you know take a look around. Edward Dalcor is another one that I I could uh, uh, bring to mind here. Uh, he wrote a book that in you know 
a number of years ago for me was was just a great book. Uh, I think it's called An Examination of, of Oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, huh. It's a little, you know, I think it's like 100 pages or something or 200 pages. Just a great book and a great primer on the exegesis of some of these key texts. And, you know, when you go through and you, you read the Oneness books and... Um, you read their articles and listen to their sermons and things. It's so easy to get caught up on, on, you know, to get caught up on issues that are really of little importance. Not to see the, the fallacious use of the text that they do. And Dalcor's book really kind of brings that thing, those things out and communicates it in a way that is very easy to understand, uh, you know, for the person who's not necessarily, um, you know, down with all the theological jive <laughs> around. Right. Um, good book, nonetheless. Yeah. Those are good. I'll, I'll make sure to include links to all those in my show notes. Um, well, so let, let me just ask you, uh, to leave, to leave my listeners with a, with a parting message. I mean, what, until your next appearance on my show, what do you really hope that we take away from this discussion? My encouragement would be to learn what you believe and why you believe it. The doctrine of the Trinity is something that very few Christians actually take the time to consider, the time to uh, come to understand, uh, to, to apprehend it, um, and it is something we need to pay attention to. Hmm. Um, it is God's highest revelation of himself, and um, it is, in my life at least, been an invaluable uh, thing to understand. Um we need to have a better understanding of the gospel as a church, I would say, as well. Um, and, and we need to get back to the text. You know? um, and if you do you know, come into a, a contact with a, a oneness person, whoever that may be, a uh, witness or a Mormon, the important thing is to, you know, is to obey uh, the, the, the apostle who was carrying the authority of Christ. He said... Um, Separate Christ in your hearts as, as Lord, as holy, and uh, give that answer with gentleness and respect. And that's the way we really need to do it. Because, look, the scriptures do not support a oneness doctrine of God, and they don't support baptismal regeneration, and they don't support any of these things. Mm. So it's real easy for a believer to to get equipped and get to the point where they're able to pin one of these, you know, uh, cult members down in a short matter of time. and In my life, there's always been a propensity for pride there. And, and I, I would just say, look, if you're, you're going to do the work, if you're going to get into apologetics, if you're going to do it, do two things. Be humble, represent the truth correctly, and repre- represent the other side truthfully as well. Right. Don't, don't fight a straw man. Don't do that. And too many people do do that kind of thing. They do it to us, but, you know, we're, we're supposed to be on top of that. Yeah, well, that doesn't give us an excuse to <laughs> to, to return yeah. in likewise fashion. Exactly, and there are a lot of uh, a huge, not only there are amount of a huge amount of misconceptions in the evangelical church regarding the Trinity, but there are a huge amount of even uh, misconceptions about the Trinity and the, and the oneness uh, movement. I mean, there's just very very little understanding. Hmm. Um, you'll you'll get some with you know the, the highfalutin theologian uh, like Jason Duell or say David K. Bernard, but but you're not going to get a, an accurate understanding of the Trinity from your your average ones person. What, yeah. what they're going to be thinking is tritheism. And, um, you know, we need to be able to put those kinds of things at rest, but do it in a gentle way. Um, and, you know, apologetics is, is basically, in my mind, long-hand evangelism. I'm sorry, so, say, say that again. You started to cut out. You said apologetics is... Yeah, apologetics in my mind is is basically longhand evangelism. Hmm. Uh, you know, we need to have an evangelistic goal when we're when we're doing these things. Uh, certainly, we do it to uh, you know shut the mouths of false teachers and protect the church. But but I think there's a real evangelistic element of what, what we're doing, and, and um, I think it needs to be. Uh, uh, I think we need to be reminded of that from time to time. Yeah, I agree. Well, this has been really great. Uh, before I let you go, where do we go to find your blog, and how can my listeners get a hold of you and, and learn more about you? Um, sure. My website is uh, onenesspentecostal.net. 
so common spelling. And uh, you can reach me there, leave a comment or uh, or anything like that. I'm always uh, responding to people on that. And I'm active on you know places like Theology Web and, and Harm and uh, even some of the oneness forums and stuff. But uh, usually pretty accessible there. Great. Well, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Chris. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I'm going to have Michael back in the future to dive a little bit more deeply into some of the oneness issues that we've talked about today. And until then, I hope that you'll join me for the next exciting episode of the Theapologetics Podcast.